And also I help lead the Surge Network, the network we're a part of as a church. And it is a real opportunity that, that I, I am grateful for that I get to dive into this text with you today. And uh, before we do, uh, just to give you a heads up, we're going to talk a little bit about work today and do a little theological reflection on work. So with that said, I actually have a question for you, a question I want you to discuss with a few people around you. So I want you to imagine that for some reason, the details are not important, you are taken into uh, witness protection today, and you have to relocate to a completely new place and do something completely new for work. Where would you go and what would you do? Go ahead and discuss with a few people around you. All right, let's go ahead and bring the conversation in. I, I couldn't quite hear what the answers were that people were saying, but this is what I know. What I did here is Im immediately with that question, there was a sense of excitement in the room that the idea to have a blank slate and to get to do whatever you want to do uh, and spend your days working in the vocations and occupations that you want to do is an exciting prospect. That's not reality. <laughs> reality is, is that all of our work is filled with some incredibly glorious things and thorns and thistles as well. And that before Christ, if we truly get a sense of the, what he has called us to in our work, that we can reimagine every aspect of our work as belonging to the biblical story and filled with deep meaning and purpose. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. That's what we're going to reflect on in this text. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 6, uh, verses 5 through 9. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And we'll have someone come and give you a Bible uh, so that we can open the word together. And as they come, let me pray. Father, we pray that today, as we gather as a congregation under the lordship of Christ, that we would be formed into his image, that you would illumine your word, that you would help us to reimagine every aspect of life as all for Jesus. We need you, and we need your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I want to start us off with a little bit of reflection about something you probably have not thought a lot about recently. Something that I think if we understood the weight and the significance and the value of this thing, we would be overwhelmed with gratitude toward God for the grace that he extends through this thing. And the thing is this, it's the letter E. You probably haven't thought much about the letter E. You've probably scribbled the four lines that it takes to make an E millions and millions of times. This isn't even the most significant letter. You think of A's, you're all about like the getting off to a good start, or Z's, the peculiar letter at the end of the alphabet, but the fifth letter in the alphabet you probably haven't even thought twice about. But we need ease. Ease are something that God gives us and extends so much grace. How could we write a grocery list that provides breakfast for our family without the letter E? 
The very city you live in, whichever city it is, whether it's Tempe, Scottsdale, Ahwatukee, Mesa, Gilbert, Chandler, those words are unintelligible without the gift of an E. E's are so significant. Every birthday card, every encouraging email, every meaningful apology, every important contract and letter of acceptance that you have received has almost inevitably had an E present, if not multiple, working within it to encourage you. Already in my sermon, I have dropped about 67 E's in the words that I've used. Can we understand and feel the weight and the significance of an E? Love. Love is incomplete without the silent, humble presence of an E at the end. Are you feeling the weight of it? Can you feel how important an E is? And I feel the weight of this for a particular reason, that that E right there was the first letter that I ever saw my daughter write. My daughter is on the autism spectrum. And there was a time when she was a little kid when all of her language went away. And we were talking to doctors and we were beginning to wonder in conversation with them if we would ever end up having a conversation with her. And about a year ago, I was sitting across a desk reading my Bible, watching her pull together the four lines of an E. What an overwhelming gift. And what I realized in that moment is that that was the fruit of the things that we've been saying around here quite a bit, that all of life is all for Jesus. Because when she was first diagnosed, we didn't know what we were going to do. And all of a sudden, we had to have all these services, and people started showing up to our homes, occupational therapists, speech therapists, teachers, different organizations that were helping us and ultimately helping her. The occupational therapist showing her how to grip the pen. The speech therapist learn, learn, teaching her how to make the eh sound that is so valuable in the conversations that we have with her to this day. And some of the best work that I've ever seen is those people coming into our home and finding out that they were people who are a part of this church or other churches in the city who deeply believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And what I've noticed as I've looked into the special needs world is that many people who know Christ are moving into it and doing incredible work. And there are many people who are commenting on other industries in our city that God's people are scattered into every vocation and occupation and are having an effect in the city because they have a view of work that is shaped by the love of Christ and the God who created all things. And you see this historically as well. When believers have gotten a sense of God's vision for work, it has produced hospitals and universities and things like human rights and protection and care for special needs and, and industries that provide jobs for people. And it has borne fruit in this world that you could not even believe. And it has been shaped in part by some of the texts in Ephesians 6 that we're going to read today. And so you should feel the weight of this text. You should also feel the weight of this text because one thing we need to be very cognizant of is that when we've gotten this text wrong as Christians in history, especially 
American history, this text right here was one of the primary texts that slave owners would use to condone and to manipulate and to promote slavery. So, so it is massively important that when we read this today, it could go one of two directions of it being distorted into an instrument of oppression and harm or catalyzing us to love people in the name of Jesus. So with that said, let's read. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So what we need to know about this text is to step back into the broader context of what Paul is doing in this section of Ephesians, starting with Ephesians 5.22. Is he's uh, engaged in a type of literary form that's called the household code that a lot of philosophers used in that day, where they provide their vision for society by taking the Roman household and articulating what relationships should look like within the, the Roman household as a template for what society should look like. And Paul's primary statement, his thesis statement, is that they are called, in, in verse 521, to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And this would have been very scandalous in that day, because in that day, there was this concept of the, um, the paterfamilias. It's like, the best way to explain it, since we're thinking Rome anyway, it was like the, the mob boss of the family. The male head of the household in Roman times had all kinds of authority, and everyone was expected to serve and submit to that person in the household. They were like the king of the household. But what, what he's saying here is in the Roman household, for those of us who are in Christ, there is a new dynamic at work. And that is that Christ is the head of the household and that we are all servants of one another out of reverence for Christ. And over the last several weeks, we've talked about how that plays out in marriage and in the relationship between parents and children. And now we come to one of the more challenging uh, relationships, which was between the master and the bondservant in that day. Masters and bondservants were, this was the primary, or it was a significant economic relationship where people would come into the service of someone, live with them as a part of their family, and engage in their family business. But they were not treated as members of the family. They were treated as, um, as property. And it's interesting because I think a crucial part of understanding this text is to understand the differences between uh, bond service in the first century and slavery in the 17th to the 19th century in the US. Because a lot of times, whenever we hear bond servant or servant, our imaginations are shaped by the images and the things that we've seen here in the, in the US or we've heard of in the, here in the US. And there are some substantial differences and some 
honestly, some similarities as well. So let's walk through what those are. Some of the main differences. One is in the first century, bond service or slavery was often, uh, it was often voluntary. So people would step into it as sort of like a welfare system to move out of poverty and starvation and to be provided for uh, by another. So it, it, was, it was voluntary. Um, it was also not focused on race or ethnicity. People from all kinds of backgrounds could move in and out of the status of slave. And it was not permanent. People could uh, earn their emancipation. There were ways for them to uh, be emancipated. And a lot of times when they were emancipated, they would enter into this relationship as a way of gaining citizenship or even gaining status. You would get status based on who the master was and the, the, the household that you were a part of. So there was a greater degree of freedom. You could move in and out of it. It was not based on race or ethnicity, and it was sometimes voluntary unless you had like committed a crime or you were on the losing side of a war or something like that. But, and there was also a higher status. So there was freedom of assembly, you had legal protections, and you had the opportunity to become a citizen. But I don't want to spin this. I don't want you to think that it was just like awesome either. Because it was pretty harsh, and there were actually some similarities to what we commonly think of as slavery. One is that it was central to the economic life of Rome. A lot of their, of their, their wealth and their economic life was generated off of this bond service um, structure that they had. That it was an opportunity for frequent abuse. It created a power dynamic where the, the head of the house could often abuse the bond servants in pretty horrible ways uh, and not have a lot of recourse. And thirdly, humans were treated like property. Aristotle actually referred to bond servants as living property. So it's not good. It's not nearly as evil and as insidious as what happened with the transatlantic slave trade but it's still a problematic relationship that promotes dehumanizing people who were made in God's image. And so it creates somewhat of an ethical dilemma. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not entirely satisfied sometimes when I read this with why Paul did not critique the institution of bond service and slavery here. But when I put myself in Paul's shoes, I kind of end up wondering what I would do, and I want you to do the same. Imagine you are writing a letter to the, the church in Ephesus and the surrounding region, and you've got to tell them to do something. Churches that are filled with uh, masters and bond servants. What would you tell them to do? Let me give you some options. One, do nothing. Say that, hey, the church isn't supposed to care about social things like that. We're just about preaching the gospel, so don't do anything. Well, that's not what happens in this case. Paul says some things that are so radical and subversive to this institution that it transforms it in, in ways that we'll explain later. Or you could say, B, revolt. Do a revolution. Overthrow the man, right? But if that were to happen, this was such a small group and it had such little power that those people would have been taken out almost immediately. They would have died. You could have told those who were in charge, the heads of the house, to release the bond servants. 
But the challenge was is that many of them entered into bond service because they were fleeing poverty, and that might actually condemn them to poverty and possibly starvation. And you might be thinking, well, what about legal reform? You could put together some like lobbyists and you could actually change some of the laws. But what was uh, in Rome, there had been a shift from a republic to an empire so that even people who were very powerful didn't have a lot of voice in how the laws got implemented and changed. So A, do nothing. B, revolt. C, release. D, reform. What would you do? Paul doesn't choose any of them. He chooses E. <laughs> and if I haven't established it already, I think E is kind of a big deal. What Paul ends up doing in this passage is he ends up reframing the relationship within the Roman household. No longer will it be that there is a master and a bondservant, but Christ replaces the role of the head of the house as the ultimate master. And because he's the one who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and his very nature is to pour himself out, his people, no matter what your status is in the Roman household, is to be that of a service to serve another. So the masters are to serve the bondservants and look out for their welfare. The bondservants are to serve the masters and to look out for their welfare and to no longer live in this slave-master dynamic. But if you get the message of the book of Philemon, go read it later, it's that slave, the slave is received as your brother, as your very family, as a human being created in the image of God that you are to care for and concern for. And the, the transformation of this dynamic actually transforms the nature of work in the first century. And I think it uh, changes the, and, and reimagines the nature of work for us today. And it does it in two ways. The work of the, the servant was have to work. It was work that, that you, you had to do. Now, some of the bond servants had high status because of who they, they served, but no matter what, it was have to work. It was work that, that you really didn't have a lot of choice in. And if I think if there's one tool that is emblematic for have to work, it's the plunger. <laughs> the plunger is the, it, this isn't saying anything about blue collar versus white collar, but I think we can all live in the common ground that poop is gross. And that whether you're in your house or it has happened here in this church when there were only pastors here and we didn't have anyone else on staff, whenever there was an emergency, you looked around and you said, who is going to do the have-to work of the plunger? And what I think this passage does is it says the instrument of, of have-to work, the instrument of hard, gross service actually is reimagined into a scepter where you rule and reign with Christ in his world. And then, I think the next uh, part of it, where Paul addresses masters and servants, it's to say that the masters have been given a scepter. If you don't know what a scepter is, it's the ornate staff that kings would hold. And it was a symbol of authority and privilege and status. 
And it says, to the degree that God has given you a scepter, you are to use that as a plunger to serve and to do the dirty work of loving others. So this passage, I believe, helps us to reimagine the plunger as a scepter and the scepter as a plunger. So let's start with the first one, how the gospel helps us reimagine the plunger as a scepter. As we mentioned, a lot of the work that the, the servants had to do was hard, have to work. It was, it, a lot of servants had some, some high status things, but if there were hard, nasty, repetitive things that people didn't want to do, it was always the bond servants who ended up doing them. And while I think we are a far stretch from being in that place, we would all agree that we have some have-to work in our lives. Am I right? I asked some people about this, and here's what they said their have-to work is. Their plunger work. And the plunger work is different for everybody. But some people told me, oh, it's tedious administration, like data entry, expense reports, emails. If you ever see Jason Raber, you will know that I struggle deeply with expense reports. Um, unbearable, work that's unbearably repetitive. I talked to someone who worked at a call center and who had to make hundreds of calls a day sometimes, making a pitch about Elmo DVDs. Same script over and over and over again. Other times it's disgusting work like unclogging sewer lines or relationally painful work like critiquing or even firing someone uh, that you wouldn't want to do to, to fire. And so I think what's happening here is Paul has some important words to help reimagine the have-to work, the, the plunger work. He says this, he says in uh, verse 5, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. The first thing we need to notice from this is that Paul, with his very first word, is actually bringing dignity to the bondservants because many people in those days would not even address the bondservants, treating them as humans because they were regarded as property. But Paul starts off not speaking to the masters, but speaking to the bondservants and dignifying them as fellow members in the household of God. And he calls them to a type of work that is, has such pervasive excellence that it's not just done when the boss is looking and overseeing the work, but even when no one is watching, the work is still done with excellence, even though it might be plunger work, it might be have-to work. In other words, this is saying that the boss button does not and should not exist within the kingdom of God. Who's familiar with the boss button? Every year, the March Madness basketball comes out, and they show some of the games during the day. And on the website where you can watch the games, there's this boss button that if your boss comes by to make sure he doesn't see you watching the game, you hit the boss button, and it just throws up a spreadsheet uh, instantly and shuts off the game. This is the ultimate of doing hard work only when you are seen. But this is saying... Do the hard work even when no one is watching. He repeats the phrase from the heart twice. That it's not just even about the right action, 
But it's about this reverent approach to work where you're not just going through the motions, but you have engaged your whole heart and your whole presence in the work that is put before you. And so you might be asking the question, and you should be asking the question, how do you put that degree of heart and presence into work that is plunger work, that you don't love and you don't want to do, and you don't want to sell any more Elmo DVDs? How, how do you do that? And I think that's what's addressed in the next verse, in verse 7 and 8, where, where he continues on saying, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. And there are a lot of things there that should pop out to us. One is that when we are serving in Christ, it reimagines our work as not working for other people per se, but ultimately we are working for God. And that all other people get promoted or demoted to a place of middle management. And this is good news for us because as people come and talk to me about work, which I would encourage you to do, it's what I'm here for. But nine times out of ten, people will come, and, and, and uh, I was talking to Tim Anderson about this the other day, and when they talk to us as pastors about their work, it's always about the boss. A lot of times they would like the work that they would do, but there's a boss who's manipulative, incompetent, uh, you know, reaches into their time with their family. But what this is saying is, ultimately, you get a new boss when you're in Christ. And that the work that you're doing is not something separate from worship, but Christ is present with you, seeing the work that you do, the hard work that you do that goes unseen, present with you. And with the presence of Christ in your daily work, you know that your typing on the emails is just as much of worship as Aaron uh, pressing the keys on the keyboard. You know that speaking the words that you need to speak in a meeting can be in the presence of Christ as much of worship as singing the songs that we sing today. It reimagines work with Christ present as the center. It also reimagines work as this royal activity. The word Lord that is used in this passage, it, um, it might not strike us with the weight that it should. Sometimes we think it's just like a, you know, like a, another word for God, or it's like some British thing. But like Lord isn't something we use quite a bit. But the word Lord has very royal connotations. And it refers to like, like Caesar, the head of everything, was referred to as Lord in that day. And by using the lordship language, it's saying that Christ is the one who is the head over everything, even of Caesar, even of the person who is your boss. And why that's significant is because in that day, oftentimes the status of a bondservant was much higher than a free person, depending on who the, their, their, their master was. And so people who were in sort of the, the royal uh, circle of, related to Caesar who were bondservants actually had it way better than those who were free and who were otherwise. And what this is saying is 
the master of your house is Christ, the king of all creation, the one who made every square inch of this world, who gave us letters like E, who, who made us, and he's the Lord over everything, and you are ultimately belonging to him, which has elevated your status which means that the daily work of your hands is the work of raising a scepter and joining in the rule of Christ as he cultivates his world. The language here should remind us of what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. When God puts humanity in the garden and he calls them to work it and to cultivate it, to draw the potential out of the soil, to pull the, the, the maple syrup out of the maple tree, that creates the breakfast that sanctifies Saturday mornings, to cultivate the potential uh, of the ground that's in the ground, to take something like sand and to cultivate silicone and turn it into something like a phone. It's a royal work, and it uses words of subdue and dominion, which are royal words. They're words that have to do with kingly ruling. And so we ought to reimagine the plunger work as scepter work, as joining Christ in the cultivation of his world, as ruling and reigning with him. Now imagine how this would have changed the perspective of a bondservant in that day who was working in a vineyard. Okay, get there mentally. Imagine you're out there in the fields, and you think it's kind of cool that you're working on some grapes, but at the end of the day, you glance across the field and you see someone sipping the finest wine that you have put all the effort in cultivating that you may never get to enjoy. You spend your days rearranging the dirt, knowing that much of your life is just going to be about rearranging the dirt until you yourself are buried in the dirt. Forgotten, doing meaningless work. But in Christ, it transforms the nature of what you do. Imagine looking at it through the perspective of Scripture. You know that for those who are in Christ and who are living out of a different story than Rome's hierarchy, that this work has great dignity and meaning and value because every microbe in the soil belongs to Christ and is an emblem of his graciousness and the way that he provides. And he provides... He provides for others, but you know that he provides through the work of your hands. You know that the grapes that sustain life, where God is providing and sustaining, are coming through you, and that the very fructose that provides energy, and the flavonoids that subdue free radicals, and the fermentation that soothes indigestion, is God being present and caring for others, through the grapes that you have cultivated, making your hands the work of his hands. You look at your crimson-stained hands from working day after day in the field, and you're reminded of Christ, the one whose hands were pierced on the cross as he died for you, knowing that the work of his hands is what establishes, redeems, reconciles, and reimagines the work of your hands. And with your calloused fingers... You may have an opportunity when the church gathers to open up Paul's letter to the Ephesians and read, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And knowing that you will never sip 
the finest Ephesian Merlot that you've been cultivating all these years. But the day is coming when you will sit in the presence of Christ and feast with him, and he is the one who brings the wine. And you feast with him, and it brings new meaning to your work. Apart from Christ in that moment, you know that you're just rearranging the dirt to make some glorified grape juice for someone who's ungrateful. But in Christ, you know that the shovel you hold, the plunger you hold, is a scepter as you rule over the ground and cultivate the grapes that sustain life. And you might be thinking, okay, that's easy back then because, you know, grapes are good. We all know that grapes are good and you need food to live. But we can do this in our day. And as I've been meeting with people in the congregation, I've seen beautiful ways that the gospel reimagines their work. Some of us, if you're like me, the plunger work is actually email. And, and for some people, you could think of email as just, you know, a steady, slowly draining the tub of trivial communication every day. But in Christ, you know what you're doing you know that you are reflecting the God of communication who's given us incredible words and sentences and letters like E that you get to cultivate as if it's your plot of God's garden for the blessing and service of another. You might work in the call center like some of my friends do and know that there's a repetition that is challenging for you. But you know that every day when you show up and you are fully present in every call, that you are reflecting the God who faithfully shows up to us every day, fully present with every sunset, even when we functionally ignore him and hang up. Probably the moment that this, that stuck out to me the most when I started to reimagine work was when I was working myself as a janitor. And the one thing that I hated doing was cleaning the toilets. I would do anything to not clean the toilets. But I was working for a guy who was a godly guy, who was also a janitor, and who helped me see what we were doing in that moment was not merely doing some, some wasteful work that's wasting our time that's beneath us, but we were doing microbiological warfare. <laughs> With every spray of, spray of bleach on that seat, we were taking out bacteria that would harm image bearers of Christ, and thereby, with every squirt of the spray bottle, were extensions of God's hand of protection and provision for people made in his image. When we get the story and what Christ is doing through our work, it reimagines everything, including the E. I was in a prison last year, um, and I encountered a woman who knew Christ and who was working in the, in the print center of the prison. They have jobs that you can do sometimes in the prison. And she was always facing challenges with the machine, but she did her work with joy because she knew that the documents she was printing on behalf of the government were needed to provide services to people. And in that moment, it dawned on me that the first step we ever took when our daughter was diagnosed with autism, before an E was even in our imaginations as a possibility, 
we had to fill out one of those forms, one of the forms that she probably printed. In Christ, all aspects of work get reinvigorated and reimagined in light of him to where the plunger becomes a scepter and we do the holy, royal work of reigning with Christ. But now it brings us to the second point. This is a shorter point, but just as significant. In Christ, the scepter, the scepter, the tool and instrument of authority and of power and of opportunity and of freedom gets reimagined into a plunger, our instrument of humble service. You see, in those days, uh, the paterfamilias, the, the head of the household, really could do whatever they wanted to do. They had get-to work. They had all of the authority. And they, could, they didn't necessarily have to be challenged. But Paul is actually challenging them in some pretty substantial ways here. And while we ourselves might not have that degree of authority as the, the head of the Roman household, we have substantial scepters. All of us has some time. All of us have some degree of, of, of money, of possessions, of time. Many of us hold positions at work that have some agency where you get to make choices. And, and there's a, an idea that every time you climb up the ladder, it's building yourself up. But Christ flips the ladder upside down. So that every step of the ladder you take, you're actually humbling yourself and finding ways that you can reimagine this new opportunity and power that you have to serve others. And we see this in verse 9. We see, it says, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. This is really radical for the time. To say to the, to the head of the household these five words, do the same to them. It slips past us. But he's saying that everything that the servants were called to do in that passage of, of the humble service, of doing work from the heart, of doing it before the face of God, also applies to them. In other words, they are to do the work of serving even their servants. And this corresponds with what we've seen as Paul's thesis, which is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That they're called to mutual service. There's still a degree of authority that exists in this relationship, but it's a dignified, honoring authority that's shaped by the gospel. Paul says to give up your threats. See, in those days... The head of the house had, uh, he had to provide for everybody, but he also was in charge of everybody. And he could threaten and kind of abuse, for the most part, how he wanted to. But Paul is saying, you're still in that position where you've got to provide for everybody, including the bondservants. But this, this threatening, this posture of treating people like they are less than and being harsh with them, and treating them in ways that don't correspond with being an image bearer are done. You may have freedom according to Rome to do such a thing, but in Christ, you yourself are a fellow servant. Christ is the Lord, and you serve as well. And it gives you an opportunity to follow Christ. As Ephesians 5.1 says, 
It's a heart, and the heart of what we're talking about in Ephesians is therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the implication is that things like power and connection and skill and position, these aren't necessarily wrong. Christ himself has those things. As a matter of fact, he is the supreme king over every inch of this world. But in Christ, we, in the church, we follow his pattern where he gives those things up and becomes a foot washer and a cross dyer for the sake and for the life of others. And so John Calvin, he captures this well. This dynamic, he says, all the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust for this condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. What are you going to do with your position? This scepter that God has given you, the choices that you make on hiring and policies and work hours, this is your scepter, your opportunity to turn it into a plunger to serve those who work for you. When you, when you own a business and your degree of ownership, how are you going to serve and put help put food on the table of those who work for you? But maybe we don't have that high level of, of position, but we all have skill. How are we going to take the skills we have and deploy them for the sake of others? The words that can so often be manipulative, especially when you are in a position of power, can you turn them into life life-giving, upbuilding words within the workplace. Your money, your property, your possessions, your influence, every number that you have on the phone can be reimagined as an act of love, an act of embracing the plunger to serve other people. I want to give you, I'm going to close with this. The best example I've seen of this is uh, someone who's a part of our church, her name is Bethany. She's got an incredible theology of work. She works as an accountant, and she knows that with every spreadsheet that she is, uh, every spreadsheet she opens is a plot in God's garden that she's been given to cultivate. But over the years, she has a lot of, of she's gained some influence, she's gained some education, she has a master's degree, and she realizes that she has some time in particular her weekends. And so she realized that some of the skills that she had could be deployed in the service of others, in, particularly, in particular, those who are in prison. So many, many Saturdays, she volunteers for this prison reentry program. And she uses her, her, her skills and her knowledge with numbers to help make budgets and to help do all kinds of things that are really going to serve people as they enter into the world. She curates different people to come in to do trainings, and she provides a rich space for them. And I came with her once, and I was going to do some, some teaching on theology of work, and what I realized is that they already had it. Her presence there, her, her deep friendship. She, like, walks around this prison like she, like, lives there and, like, owns the place and, uh, they, and it was incredible. And I was realizing that my work there was not even needed because she had cultivated such a rich relationship with them 
And, I, and, and she was the one who introduced me to the woman who printed the documents that allowed us to get the services for the people to come and do occupational therapy and, and speech therapy in order for my daughter to be able to write the E. And with, with the simple looking at the things of our lives, the blessings God has given us, using them as divine deposits to give to another, we can fill this city with not just E's, but the whole alphabet of God's grace. And this doesn't come through our own brilliance and our own skill, but it comes through union with and deep worship of and being in the presence of the one who is the great king, who holds the scepter as the ruler over all creation, whom we all should serve and ask nothing of, but he gave everything for us. Stepping into creation, holding the plumber, washing the feet of those who even rejected him, and going to the cross, pouring out his life, dying and serving us by bringing us and reconciling us to God. Three days later, with the scepter of a resurrected king, calling all God's people to take up your plungers and use them as scepters and take your scepters and reimagine them as plungers for the service of others. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the great king and the Lord over all creation. The whole earth belongs to you. And we praise you as the one who stepped into that earth, as the great servant, the great foot washer, the one who mercifully loved us through the cross. We thank you that you are present with us in every plunger task that we have to engage in throughout the day and that you fill it and invigorate it with meaning. We thank you that the work of your hands, Jesus, is what establishes the work of our hands. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.